0: let us pray father god speak to us may your words come to life in our hearts in our minds use me as an instrument O lord anoint my lips but anoint our ears we pray this all in jesus name amen well good morning and again happy new year to you all and to all your loved ones from saint david's you know the church father origin once said what good does it do for me if christ was born once in bethlehem and if he is not born in my heart again through faith What good does it do for me if Christ was born in Bethlehem once and he's not born in my heart twice through faith? In other words, Christ is what matters the most. Believing in Christ, having a relationship with Christ is what matters the most. Christ must be central and primary to our existence having this intimate connection with him in life is what matters. This requires faith, but this is worship. Wanting Christ more than anything in this life, that's what matters ultimately and fundamentally, all of us. We should never get too tired or too old and take Jesus for granted. No. We should wake up every day and wanting Christ and wanting him more and more and more in our lives. I hope and pray this year would be just that where each day, every hour we would want and seek Christ to dwell in our lives. Be aware of his presence. But not all people and possibly those who even come to church might not have this desire, this wanting to have Christ reign in our hearts 24-7, 365 days throughout the year. For some, knowledge and understanding of Christ is enough. But God wants more than that. God wants more than just knowledge of his son. No, worship. Worship is beyond knowledge. Worship is what the Lord, our God, wants. For simply knowledge of Christ, the king, is not enough. It does not save. Worship of the king saves. And this is what we learned this morning in today's gospel text. Knowledge of the Christ, the king, is not enough. It does not save. No, it is worshiping the Christ. The king is what saves. The context of today's gospel reading is one of very, very Jewish character. And you notice this by the overall theme in Matthew and key phrases and concepts and events. And people mentioned, it is very Jewish in its orientation. And we see that in today's passage as Matthew himself was likely the tax collector, a Jewish tax collector. We begin as we look at this text with Bethlehem of Judea. And that is on purpose of Judea because there were two Bethlehems. There were two Bethlehems. There was a Bethlehem in the north, historically and biblically always referred to as Israel. And then there was a Bethlehem in the south, historically and biblically referenced in the region of Judea, Judah. And so Matthew wants his readers to have no doubt which Bethlehem he's referring to. He's referring to Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah, in the south. Why? What's the significance of that? Well, that is where David was born. That was his hometown. And that is where all the Davidic kings came from. All the Davidic kings from David and beyond came from Judah. In Bethlehem. And that is where the prophet Micah prophesied and spoke to his people that one day a ruler, the Messiah, would come out of Bethlehem. And so this passage begins with this very important reference to underscore Jesus' ultimate origin, lineage, and fundamental office that he is the Messiah the Savior. Ironically, we are then told that all this is happening during the reign of King Herod, who for all intended purposes was the king of the Jews at the time. But he wasn't really a legitimate king. No. He was a client king installed by the Romans. In the year 40 B.C., he was essentially a puppet king for the Romans. He wasn't legitimate. He did not come from the lineage of David. He himself is a non-Jew. Herod is not a Jew. Herod is an Edomian. He comes from the south. And the only reason he became king is because his father had good standing with Caesar Julius, Julius Caesar, who was the emperor in 63 BC. And so somehow this man Herod becomes king, but he's not the real heir of David. And so you have this dichotomy in this passage of a king who's not really a king, and Jesus the Christ who's the legitimate king and the heir of David. Of David he the latter is truly the king of the Jews who deserves all the worship and praise and glory yet that's not what takes place so you have this imposter versus the true one in this passage and then we read that there was wise men magi that's the Greek word magi So where do we get the word magician from? Magi, the wise men who come from the east, right? And who are these men? They're astrologers, they're physicians possibly, they're teachers, they're seers, or even sorcerers. Again, we get the word magician from this word Magi. And they come into Jerusalem and say to the crowds, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. Notice a couple of things here. One, they recognize the child that has just been born as king. They don't wait for him to become an adult, to grow in stature, to be installed and enthroned as king. No, He is king at his birth. The child is king. He is already king. And they have traveled from the east, Anatole. And this is like Cyrus in the Old Testament, the righteous man from the east. They have traveled, most likely they're Persian. And they've traveled an estimated 400 miles from where? They left their origin, their country. A trip that would be distanced with the approxi- approximately would take anywhere between two to three weeks if they traveled by camel. On foot, likely a month or more. And if you consider the only way that they found Jerusalem and then Bethlehem was the star, That means they probably only traveled at night. And so that extends the time it took for them to reach their destination. Meaning they possibly traveled 400 miles in an estimated one to two or even more months to come and worship this king. The question is why? Why would they travel so far, so long? A travel like that in the terrain with hills and valleys and with wild animals and thieves possibly, why would they risk so much? Why would they go out of their way, right? This is a remarkable display of worship. Right? The reverence, the tribute, the homage. Why would they travel so much? They're not even Jewish. They're pagan Gentiles. Why would they go out of their way, risk so much, and trouble themselves so much? Well, Matthew tells us. Matthew tells us. They have come to worship Him. They have come to worship Him. True worship should cause one to take extra measures, to go beyond the norm, to sacrifice, to risk. That is what worship is. It demands a lot at times. There is often a price to worship. There's an allegiance to this one thing or this one person. That's what worship is. There's a great sacrifice that one is willing to go and to take for the sake of worship. The word worship itself is a vivid one. Proskeneo is the word in Greek here. Proskeneo. This is where we get the word prostrate. The physical act of falling on your knees and having your forehead touch the ground. That's what the word proskeneo means. What a vivid image of worship, right? To fall on one's knees, to bow down and have your forehead touch the floor. What a profound image of reverence and homage. It captures what these men came to do. The next time this word is used is in the wilderness. When Jesus was tempted and Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness, all of this will be yours if you proskuneo. Bow down and worship me. And you see this word 72 times in the New Testament. And in Matthew, it comes up regularly when Jesus heals the leper and the leper thanks him. He proskinaos. Or the Canaanite woman who was healed. The merciful servant, the parable. He throws himself at the mercy of his master the mother of the sons of Zebedee who come before Jesus and asks for a favor. She bows down. She's on her knees with her forehead touching the ground. And then later, the ultimate event is when the disciples see the resurrected Christ. They throw themselves at the floor, at his feet and worship in proskeneo. Is that the kind of image we bear when we worship Christ. You see this happening throughout the New Testament, throughout Jesus' ministry. How about us who know the truth? We are not the pagan Gentiles. How about us? Is that the kind of posture we display before Christ our Lord in our lives? When we come to worship Christ, is He deserving of that from us? That is the question, isn't it? That's a real question. I have to ask the question to myself Lord Jesus, do I worship you like this? But not only physically. Because worship in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is often understood, the concept, as service. Are we willing to serve the Lord? Everything we have, everything that we are, is that the kind of worship that we display before Christ? You might have to take a moment, pause, and think about that. As I think about this, I'm ashamed at at the fact that how these wise men, these Magi who come from the East worship and they give Christ everything. How about us? Think about it. Christ hasn't done anything for these men. Nothing. Christ even hasn't even spoken to these men. He's just a child. He's an infant. He hasn't promised them anything. He hasn't rewarded them with anything. He hasn't removed anything from their lives. And yet they're willing to travel that far and offer him true treasure. How about us? Are we willing to travel that far, go to those lengths, sacrifice and give and risk? Are we? what does our worship look like when it comes to our bodies when it comes to our hearts when it comes to our minds when it comes to our money when it comes to our time when it comes to our plans do we take jesus for granted So when Herod hears about this, he is troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. It's not a surprise. Of course he would be troubled. The true king has been born. He's afraid. He's afraid he's going to lose his power, his position, his office. So what does he do? He assembles synagogue. Again, very Jewish. He assembles all the priests. This would include the high priest, the ruling priest at the time, Caiaphas, the previous priest, uh, Annas, and all the priestly families. And then he also assembles all the scribes, which possibly could mean the Pharisees and Sadducees. So essentially what, what Herod does here is, once he hears that this king has been born, these Magi, he assembles the entire Sanhedrin, the religious group, Who would know about the Messiah? And he asked them, Well, where is this Messiah, the Christ, to be born? And they say to him, In Bethlehem, they quote Micah 5 2. They know exactly where the Messiah would be born. There's no doubt they know. They know their scriptures, they have knowledge of the Messiah. They know the when, the where, and the why yet they fail to act on the truth of their knowledge you see the religious teachers know when where and why christ the christ was to be born yet they fail to follow these magi to bethlehem they have the knowledge They have understanding. They know their holy scriptures. Yet, they don't follow and worship the king. You see, God wants more than knowledge and understanding. Faith is beyond knowledge and understanding. God wants worship. He wants us to be concerned about him. He wants us to be invested in him. This isn't just exclusively for clergy. No, this is for all people. To be invested in him and his ministry. First seek the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, right? The priority is to be him and him only. First, central, all of us. And so... We must personally seek, travel, ask, give, endure, risk. When it comes to Christ, that is what worship means. To serve him. To come down and and say, I am all yours, Lord. What image do you have when you see one bowing down? It's basically, I'm at your service, your majesty. Do with me whatever you want. Send me, take me, use me, show me. I am yours. I am all in. I do not hold back one inch, one day, one hour of my life. It belongs to you, for you are my king and my savior. We who have received salvation from this king how much more should we be serving worshiping than these men who Christ has done nothing for them and so once they're told by Herod to go to Bethlehem because that's where the Messiah is, the Christ, the king of the Jews. They get up and they follow the star. And that image reminds me of the Old Testament as God led his people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night into the promised land and from the oppressor. And so that is exactly what they do. And when the star stops and reaches Bethlehem, it says that they were filled with great joy. Kara. And this is precisely the word that the angel told the shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy. And you see the fulfillment of that joy through these pagan Gentiles. The Magi, the wise men. They are filled with joy. And what do they do? They enter the home. They fall on their knees. Proskeneo. And they worship him. Christ. And they offer him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Valuable, valuable treasures. This is Worship. Think about how much they had to carry their goods, their equipment, and these gifts just, just to see the king of the Jews. Christ had not blessed them. In fact, it's the opposite. They bless him they bless him. And the same is for us. If we follow the star, and the star, I believe, symbolizes for us this morning is God's word. The word of God, if we follow the star, it will lead us to Christ. And when we have found Christ, we should be overjoyed and then fall on our knees and worship the king because of what we learn he has done for us through his word. The star should be for us the word of God that leads us to the son, the savior, the king of the Jews. And notice what happens at the end. After they have worshipped him, they get word in a dream to not go the same route they came. Because the oppressor, Herod, like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, wanted to destroy them. And so God saves them and tells them to go a different route. You see, knowledge does not save, worship saves worshiping the Christ Jesus saves God saves us and will save us from all sorts of trouble all sorts of oppressors whether that is sin or other oppressors where we see injustices taking place the Lord God will save us he will show us a different way he will forewarn us he will give us heed he will guide us he will save us and so my dear brothers and sisters and friends this year i ask you and the lord asks me asks us all invites us to worship him so the Lord can save us, has saved us, and will continue to save us. What does our worship look like today? How far are we willing to travel, to go, to endure, to give? We, we, who have received the precious body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope and pray this is a new year for us in faith. A new year for us in faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that your word would be the star that guides us from page to page, from truth to truth, and would leave us, O oh Lord, to a place where we encounter you Christ and that that stirs us within and provides great joy and that we would then proscaneo, fall down on our knees and we're at your service do that for us this year O oh Lord Speak to us each and every day. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.